Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. As we round out Season 12 of LeVar Burton Reads, I have another story about loss for you today. But it's a loss of a different kind. It's about losing your sense of self and how you get it back. Waystation City comes from a special issue of Uncanny Magazine. And it's by the engineer and writer A.T. Greenblatt. Her work has received a Nebula Award and was a finalist for the Hugo, Locus, Sturgeon, and the WSFA Awards. A.T. Greenblatt used the city of Luxembourg as inspiration for the setting of this story, but I don't think the Waystation city of the title is completely recognizable as Luxembourg, or any city for that matter. It's a true in-between place. As when the characters reach the edges of the city, the ground is literally shifting beneath their feet. The citizens of Waystation City have been ripped from their respective times and places and deposited into this roiling, churning reality. It is a great story. So, let's get started, shall we? If you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. Waystation City by A.T. Greenblatt. I was finishing the last of my nightly coffee when the 1970s twins approached my table and asked me to bear witness to their disappearance. This was not an unusual request at Café Liminalité, being the locale of patrons that dreamed too much and ate too little. I, being its longest and oldest customer, had heard and witnessed this request many times. Pardon me, the taller twin said. 
Are you Madame Hexler? Her voice was soft, but her gaze was direct. Beside her, her brother, a head shorter and shorter still by his slouched posture, placed his hands in his pockets. They both had lovely ebony skin and black, cloud-like hair that surrounded their head in a halo. Her shirt was a cheerful yellow knit, and there was a bright kerchief tied around her neck. His was white and synthetic with a wide, deep collar edged with red. They wore tight-fitting pants of blue denim that flared at the bottom. I am told these are called jeans. They were unlikely twins, but their mannerism, the way they shared a space, betrayed a closeness. Later, I would learn their names. Daphne and Claude. I am, I said. The twins exchanged a look. Claude inhaled deeply and said, Ma'am, we'd like to make a request. We're going to leave the sea. One of the beautiful things about Café Liminalité was that it was always alive, no matter the hour. There were forever patrons in the armchairs and on the bar stools, arguing, drinking, and complaining. The air perpetually smelled of sweet-flavored tobacco and harsh, cheap cigarettes. All the whispers of smoke exhaled. Even in those rare moments where there was but one customer, Anton, the proprietor, busied himself with some task loudly to keep the silence at bay. In silence, we began to doubt ourselves. Claude had not been speaking loudly, but when he voiced, We're going to leave the sea, the cheerful din of the cafe seemed to grow distant and cold, like a wind that rips through a window curtain, revealing a dark and unknowable world. Some of the patrons turned to stare at the twins. Some patrons turned and stared at anything but my little corner table and the people gathered around it. In the raw hushness, the twins exchanged another look, a nervous one. I began to answer, but Anton appeared at my elbow then, refilling my cup with fresh coffee. Running low, I see, he said. <laughs> Never, I replied, and Anton smiled. Are you certain you want to leave? Anton asked the twins. Is the city so bad? The city is lovely, Daphne said. We just don't fit in anymore. Anton raised an eyebrow. Aside from the likeliness in mood and mindset, the patrons of the cafe were as varied as the timelines they came from. From the vantage point of the corner table, we could see customers from 1920s New York, early 2000s Tokyo, 1940s Mexico City, and a dozen others with a mix of different clothes and hairstyles from many different times and places. When each specimen was unique, it was not possible to stand out in Café Liminalité. Well, Daphne amended, Waystation City doesn't feel like home anymore. We're changing, Claude added softly. Ah, 
Anton said. And what if disappearing is worse than changing? Daphne raised her head and met his eyes directly. And what if fear is the only reason we stay? Anton shrugged. They say your accounts are truthful, she continued, turning to me and nodding at the notebook before me, craning her neck slightly to make out the words. I closed it. Yes, I said. Will you record us? Perhaps. Perhaps. If there's something interesting to record, I said. The twins relaxed some and did not consider, perhaps, how many stories are not worth telling. Can you take us there? Claude asked. I can show you the way, but that's not the same thing. It's dangerous to go into the lower city, Anton interjected. Foolish, even. Would you rather not stay, have some coffee or wine? Perhaps something stronger on the house. Steadily, the cafe had grown noisy once again. The twins barely considered before saying, No, no thank, thank you. you, in near unison. Anton sighed. Drinkers were calling him from the bar stools. Don't endanger my favorite custom, he said, giving my shoulder a small squeeze. In my ear, he leaned down and whispered, I'll let Michaela know, before hurrying to the bar, scolding the drinkers, making them laugh. We can pay you, said Daphne. I don't need it, I said, standing. Though you might, depending on where you end up. The twins fidgeted. They wanted to argue. But you can settle my tab with Anton. Daphne nodded and strode over to the bar. Claude helped me with my jacket. I drained my coffee in one swallow. Nights of disappearances were always cold and long. Pardon me for being direct, Claude said. But if you don't want money, what do you want? I tucked my notebook and pen into my coat pocket, alongside the envelope that was already there. Answers. It was nearly midnight when we left Café Liminalité, and the city was wearing its best nightgown. Under the eaves of shops and on the corners, there were small gatherings of people talking or laughing, their conversation weaving in and out of five different languages, their clothes and hair a mishmash of sarongs and button-downs, overalls and saris, bobs and long, intricate braids, true waystation citizens. The stone-paved roads glistened after a sudden shower, and the soft electric street lamps illuminated the ground, but only hinted at the buildings on either side, short and tall, wooden or stone, or bamboo in construction, as eclectic and mismatched as the people. As we moved towards the main boulevard, the smell of rain and the flowers blooming in the terraces above the shops haunted our steps. Waystation City was lovely always, but it was this late-night beauty I loved best. The twins and I walked to the nearest tram stop and waited. On the nearby streetlight hung a poster that read, Avoid the Lower City, 
It is not worth the risk. Wait. Claude read it quickly and turned away. Daphne ignored it, pointedly, staring up the tracks. In the cool, damp night, the twins stood out with their bright shirts and bell-bottom jeans, looking like fresh arrivals to the city, ones still searching for answers. Which was true, though the question tonight would be the last they would ask of this place. Tell me your story, I said. The twins looked startled, as if they forgot I was beside them. Why? Daphne asked. You can't understand an ending without knowing the beginning. Jesus, Daph, said Claude. Haven't you read her articles? Daphne flushed. Tram's here. The tram car approached, bright blue, lit up merrily with strings of lights, announcing its arrival with a tingling of bells. We boarded. Daphne held out city-minted coins for three tickets. End of the line, please, she said to the conductor. The conductor hesitated. There was only one reason travelers took a late-night tram to the edge of the city. He studied the twins with some trepidation, taking them in. Daphne's determined stance. Claude's gaze that was fixed on some spot near the ceiling. When he turned to me, there was recognition in his eyes. For a moment, I thought the conductor was going to refuse us passage. Instead, he gave me a small nod and accepted Daphne's money. I knew then that one day soon, he would ask me to witness his disappearance too. That is, if I was still in Waystation City. The tram's bell rang, and its engine thrummed as it shifted gears. Wait! A voice cried out. The voice was followed quickly by a tall, lanky figure springing onto the tram. The latecomer wore a bespoke suit and a trilby with short-cropped hair and polished shoes. With one smooth motion, they handed their fare to the conductor and took a seat next to me. Good to see you too, Gertie, they said after a moment of silence. That was when I realized the late comer was Michaela. You cut your hair, I said. You got new clothes, she replied. I was wearing a pair of trousers in a feminine cut, which felt strange after a lifetime of skirts, but also thrilling. One of a million little changes I had adopted since coming to the city, many of which would have horrified my younger self. You wear them well, she observed. Not as well as you, I said. Michaela beamed. Ah, new victims, Gertie? she said, turning to the twins. They were just about to tell me their story, I said, and then to the wide-eyed twins explained, Please excuse Michaela. She's an old friend and knows the lower city better than anyone. Oh, I didn't miss the good part, exclaimed Michaela, taking off her hat and stretching out her long legs, settling in. The twins stared at us from across the tram, their 
hands instinctively found one another's. What do you want to know? Claude asked hesitantly. Everything, I said. The soft click-clack-clack of the tram was a steady heartbeat as the twins relayed their story. Claude began, and Daphne took up the tale when he faltered, trading it back when she ran out of words. Michaela listened with her hat on her stomach and her olive-skinned hands folded neatly over it. I opened my notebook and began to transcribe. Tonight, I would witness the twins' story, whatever the ending, and if it was worth telling, I would send it to my editor at the paper in the morning. Despite the signs and warnings, it seemed everyone in this peculiar city was hungry for stories of the disappeared I provided. We don't know how we came to Waystation C, began Clark. Not exactly, at least. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Coco Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Now, let's get back to our story. It had been a late night when the 1970s twins arrived in the city. They began the evening with reggae at the Four Ace Club before a friend suggested checking out the marquee. It was June 5th, 1977, and an Irish punk band was playing, the Boomtown Rats, Lanky, untried, captivating, and full of rage. The twins didn't drink much that night, didn't have more than one or two pulls on a joint. They didn't have the luxury of being less than sharp and aware, violence and hatred against immigrants being rampant. After the show, they took the tube home, surrounded by friends, talking and laughing and lingering close, keeping an eye on other passengers, too. One by one, their friends got off at other stops until they were the last in an empty car. They noticed nothing strange in this last part of the trip, even in hindsight. And yet, when they emerged from the tube station, they did not find themselves in Brixton, a few streets from the flat they shared with a mother and two other siblings. The city they found themselves in was not the one they began in, and it was nearly dawn. Later, they learned its name, the Waystation. The air was cold as the twins rose from the street and dread settled within them. It had been a mild summer night when they entered the cab. Now there were snowflakes floating around them, clinging to their eyelashes. They cast about, panicked as they realized the strangeness of their surroundings. The streets were lined with buildings from a dozen different centuries, all looking impossibly new. 
there were flowers blooming in the terraces amidst the coldness of winter. They learned quickly that Waystation City was full of good Samaritans, that the woman who helped them off the street and to the city's resource center had also arrived under mysterious circumstances, that all the city's citizens came from a different place and a different time unexpectedly. The woman, the workers at the resource center, everyone they met in the years that followed told them they were lucky to have each other, to be siblings in this unexpected limbo. Usually, new citizens arrived alone. The twins were given housing, a spacious apartment not too far from the city's parks. They were given jobs, Daphne working with distribution of shipments coming from the river ferries. She was always quick with numbers. And Claude with a tailor shop. He always had a good eye for fabrics and was clever with his hands. They were welcome and accepted. They were grateful, but homesick for their friends and family, worried about the rising fascism in Britain and the state of the anti-racist protests they were part of. They begged for directions home, but their caseworker shook his head sadly and told them to wait that one day they would find a ticket or a letter or a map with instructions on how to leave the city and return to their own time and place. Everyone in Waystation City did. Eventually. We gave patients a good go, Daphne said defensively. Really, we did. For two years, they worked They tried out new clothes that were from more than one decade in place and went out in the evening, making friends with other lost people, exchanging gossip, debating the influence of music across genres and equality late into the night. They smoked cigarettes and ate whatever was on the menu, picked up a little French, German, and Mandarin. They watched as one or two of those friends got their promised directions back to their timelines or simply disappeared. They waited. But always the 1970s called them home and they held on to every piece they could. They hummed songs from that last concert they attended, talked about the growing Rock Against Racism movement, their endless fight against fascism, sexism, and racism, like a talisman, reminding themselves of the things that fueled them in their lives before. They could not stop dreaming of where they came from, terrible as it was. We were helping to organize protests, Claude said. We were at the grassroots, the center of change, added Daphne. We were doing something. They were going to be patient for their ticket, their map, really, but then one morning a week ago, Daphne woke up and couldn't remember any of the lyrics or riffs she loved. Claude couldn't remember the faces of his mates or the street names around their home. They could no longer recall the fury and dreams that compelled them to go to rallies in the London streets. Their life before Waystation City 
felt like a worn and faded dream. We're losing ourselves here, Claude said, putting his head in his hands. We can't stay, said Daphne fiercely. We were fighting for something at home, and here, here, we're just waiting, Claude finished. Beside me, Michaela sighed, running a hand through her black, shorn hair. I closed my notebook and did not argue. We did not get off at the end of the line. Rather, we disembarked at the second-to-last stop and walked the last quarter mile to the stairway. The entrance to the stairs was mercifully empty of any good waystation Samaritan trying to discourage those who wanted to disappear. There was another sign on the railing that said, Please just wait. Your time will come. Daphne scowled at the message and, without breaking stride, headed down the long stairway. Claude read it and bit his lip, but only for a moment before following his sister. Michaela followed next. I followed them all. The stairway was badly illuminated, and the stairs were slick. On our right was a rough stone wall, and on our left there was open air and darkness that promised a long, unpleasant fall. We proceeded slowly, sinking down into the belly of Waystation City, where the trees grew tall and the stone arches were broad and shrouded. The stink of the river came on strong and camouflaged. Behind the wind were the sounds of stone grinding on stone, of something rusted and ill-used creaking open of something heavy and final snapping shut. The twins moved silently and with caution, afraid of slipping, perhaps, perhaps nervous of what they might find tonight in the dark, shifting places of the lower city. Michaela broke the silence first. I'm assuming you've read Gertie's accounts of other disappearances. Yes, she said. All of them, Claude replied. We know what to do, Daphne said. Of course, of course, said Michaela, airily. Of our party, she seemed most at ease, unperturbed by the ominous sounds and the creeping apprehensiveness that grew stronger as we descended. So... You know the dangers. Daphne turned quickly to glare at Michaela and did not see the transformation. The stone stair she was about to step onto blurred for a moment and solidified with a soft grinding sound and a thin sheet of ice upon it. Daphne's foot slipped, and for an agonizing heartbeat, she lingered in air, hovering before the fall. Then Claude caught her shoulder and steadied her. Damn, she breathed clutching her brother's elbow. That wasn't there before, was it? She asked, lowering at the icy step. No, I said. The shifting will only get worse from here. The twins looked at each other, hesitating. The groans and grating 
the lower city reshaping itself was louder now, but not yet in the forefront. Shall we turn back? Michaela suggested. Stop trying to change our minds, snapped Daphne. Perhaps I'm your voice of reason, Michaela replied cheerfully. There's no reason here, said Claude. He peered over the side of the steps into the canopy below. The darkness was not enough to obscure how the leaves on the foliage were changing shape, color, and species at random, how the foundations of the stairway were stone one moment and glass or cork the next. (sighs) True, said Michaela, sighing. Docks are this way. We continued more cautious than before, as the stairs beneath our feet became treacherous and unknowable. Michaela led, and she would often pause an instance before a step would turn into water or silt, having developed a bit of foresight for the moods of the Undercity over the years. Once, after one particular late evening in Café Liminalité, Michaela confessed to me that sometimes she came to the lower city simply to watch one thing transform into another. The twins almost collapsed in relief when we reached the final stair. Oh no, not yet, said Michaela, as she hurried us to where the walls became arches, and then became caverns. Soon we found ourselves navigating the narrow pathway between the sloping stone floors and the rivulets of water running down them. The caverns were timeless, unchanging, but the groans and cracks of the lower city shifting echoed through this space. Perhaps that was why the twins did not notice the words on the wall at first. Wait, Claude said, approaching the wall. Sprawled across it were messages of the disappeared in thick white paint. Simple statements such as, If nothing else, I was here. And, We'll meet again. To long poems or confessions that were too intimate to copy down. There's so many, he breathed. It's beautiful. Daphne came up beside him. We should add our own. At the base of the cavern wall sat a handful of cans of paint and brushes. How about here? Claude asked, pointing to a bare spot between a farewell and a hymn. Perfect. Daphne reached down and ready to brush. In a steady hand, she wrote, We want to stay what we are. Michaela sighed, accepting defeat gracefully. The docks. I said, pointing ahead. Be as quiet as you can. The twins became somber at this and nodded. They followed my lead. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. 
Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lift or Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Now, let's get back to our story. When we reached the river docks, we could just barely make out the ferry drivers. They moved with cold efficiency, stacking crates of food and materials on the docks. They were figures of soft edges and blurred lines. It was impossible to distinguish gender or coloring or the cut of their clothes. Why they provided for the city and where they came from was a mystery. They answered no questions and accepted no passengers. Any direct encounter with the ferry drivers and waystation city citizens ended badly. My first newspaper article as a fresh citizen here followed a man who thought he could reason with the ferry drivers. But when he entered their line of vision, he simply dissolved before my eyes. One moment, he was a hole. The next, he was a puddle of water, a mound of graphite and calcium flakes. It had been years, but that moment still revisits me in dreams. His story, however, made me Waystation City's most infamous journalist. At first glimpse of the ferry drivers, the twins threw themselves behind the last of the arches. Michaela and I joined them. Beyond the docks, the ferries were coming in and departing, dozens of them of various sizes, hues, and builds. Beyond the ferries were the holes in the fabric of the world. The twins gasped almost in unison. Witnessing the holes was always a sight of wonder and terror. Wonder because some of the holes showed lush gardens and bustling cityscapes, Terror, because others showed polluted oceans and desolated towns. The holes appeared without warning, with a clap, lingered for a few minutes while the ferries crossed through, and snapped closed with a sharp thud. To reach the holes, one had to swim. If you are to do this, choose carefully, I whispered to the twins. Timing must be exact. You don't want to end up on an island in the middle of the Pacific, Michaela added. Or in the middle of a war. Or in the ferry driver's sights, said Michaela. And I shivered. I checked to ensure my notebook, pen, and the envelope were still in my pocket. They were. Daphne nodded, and Claude reached for her hand. They studied the holes beyond the docks with a fixed intensity. The twins did not choose rashly. Instead, we crouched in our hiding places for almost an hour, watching the fairies come and leave, the holes appearing and disappearing. They waited. A hole appeared a few hundred yards from shore, and Daphne's breath caught. That one, she whispered, and rushed forward. Daph, wait, Claude said, but she was already running. The hole showed a town by the coast, and judging by the cars, the power lines, and lights, it was sometime in the 1970s. 
Daylight streamed through it with the smell of the ocean and the cry of gulls. Daff! cried Claude, racing after her. The docks were changing and transforming under their feet as the twins ran. Wood slats became metal, then linen, then bamboo, before reverting back to wood. The cacophony of noise from the change was overwhelming. It was the only reason why the ferry drivers did not notice the twins immediately. Daphne was the first to dive into the black, rippling river, and she swam with strong strokes to the hold. Claude, come on, she called. But on the dock, the wooden slats became marble as Claude slipped and fell into the water with a large splash. Nearby, the ferry drivers looked up from their work. Hurry, I shouted. Go! Daphne spotted the ferry drivers turning toward her. Hurry, Claude, she cried, and threw herself through the hole. She disappeared. Wait! Claude was desperately swimming towards the hole. He was almost there. Then the hole snapped closed with a thud. I was too far to see the despair on his face, but I felt it. The ferry drivers were alert now and scanning the water, only missing Claude because a new hole opened up with a clap a dozen feet from him and the ferry emerging from it shielded him from their view. The new hole showed a field of wheat. It could have been anywhere in any time. Claude, swim back! Michaela yelled. He did not. He did not even hesitate. Write this down, he called. Don't let me vanish completely. Come back, I shouted. In the distance, he shook his head once. Then he disappeared. That was exciting, Michaela said as we climbed carefully up the stairs. I wish Claude stayed and waited, I said. Me too. Will their story be in tomorrow's paper? Day after, I said. I'm too tired tonight. It was nearly dawn. The citizens of the city craved stories about the disappeared. They wanted reports of the dangerous, shifting landscape of the lower city, for glimpses into other worlds and possibilities, while the disappeared wanted to be remembered, to go down on record before they embarked into the unknown, to be more than the messages they left on the walls. If only I could have convinced them that changing isn't so bad, Michaela said with a sigh as we reached the top of the stairs. They were happy with who they were, I said. She offered me a cigarette and I accepted. They were stuck here, while at home the fight for change probably marched on without them. I don't blame them, Michaela. Michaela exhaled and nodded. Oh, you've decided then. I pulled out the envelope from my pocket. Inside was a ticket 
with my name, the city I came from, and the year I left behind. It was my passage home. I stared at it for a long moment. Then I reached out and dropped the ticket over the edge of the stairs. It disappeared into the lower city. That's my answer. Michaela breathed a sigh of relief. Could you imagine me going back to 1904 to write solely about ladies' etiquette again? I said, gesturing to my new pants. And Michaela laughed. <laughs> God, no. It's like me going back to skin-tight dresses and coiffed hair, she replied, grinning. But then grew serious. Softly, she added, I'm thinking of changing my name to Michael. I studied my friend. In profile, she did look like a man, or rather more like himself. Before I came to Waystation City, such a declaration would have shocked me. Such a change would have been beyond my imagination. But why does a city like this exist, if not for the unimaginable and unlikely? It suits you, I said. And Michael smiled. We want to remain what we are too, I suppose, he said. Yes, I agreed. "'snubbing my cigarette. "'Now, let's go home. "'I'm cold.' "'There were those in Waystation City who waited. "'Then there were those who disappeared. "'And then there were those of us who changed, "'who were changing still, "'and we were the ones living in the spaces in between.' This story really struck a chord in me. Because, you know, they say that change is the only constant in the universe. And this is a story about change. I mean, the, the, the very nature of the undercity is change, shifting. The, the idea that you really can't rely on, on what is normally solid, Right. I remember my first real earthquake as a resident of Los Angeles and realizing that the thing that I felt was the most solid, constant thing in the world, the earth, no longer had that meaning for me. I experienced the, the very ground I walk on to be liquid and shifting and, boy, did that scared the hell out of me. It's unnerving change sometimes. But it is something that we need to embrace. Because as cliche as it sounds, change is the most constant thing in this realm. I really love this story. And Waystation City. And the characters in this story. Um, 
and their motivations. I mean, the twins, I, I can really relate to being in a strange place, you know, a stranger in a strange land. And, and the feeling of beginning to lose oneself. I fought so hard first to figure out who I am in this lifetime. And then to maintain my commitment to being exactly that, being who I am. The fear being, of course, that I would lose myself, right? We resist it, don't we, change? But if we are able to embrace the change while maintaining our center. That's the holy grail, right? That's when we know we are really living with our eyes and our hearts wide open and our feet firmly planted on the ground even when the ground is moving. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, the best in the business, y'all. Our fabulous researcher is L.D. Lewis, always happy to have you aboard, my sister. Our editing and sound design by the extraordinary Brendan Burns. And thanks to Talon Stradley for his invaluable production support. Our original theme and credits music is by our own Brendan Burns. My great thanks today to A.T. Greenblatt for allowing me to read her story. If you liked it, you can find more of her work at A.T. Greenblatt. G-R-E-E-N-B-L-A-T-T dot com. If you like the podcast, one of the best things you can do to support it is to tell a friend. Just pick an episode and send them the link. Share the short fiction wealth. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment, our executive producers are Josephine Martorana and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And if you want to find me on the internet, I'm LeVar.Burton on Instagram, at LeVar Burton on Twitter, or the LeVar Burton on TikTok. You can also go to LeVarBurton.com. And hey, if you want to join my book club, go to Fable.co slash LeVar. We're reading together, y'all. Come join us. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. 
Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lift or Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP.